0: The story is told, though who can say if it be true,
1: of a clan of medieval warriors awoken in modern-day Manhattan, of the animated series that told their story.
2: It is an age of darkness, superstition and the sword rule. It is an age of fear. It is the age of
1: gargoyles. Welcome to Voices from the Eerie, A Gargoyles
3: Podcast. Hello and welcome to Voices from the Erie, A Gargoyles Podcast. I'm Zach Joyner, webmaster and executive producer of the Spidey Dude Radio Network. Thank you for listening to the show. This show is powered by spidey-dude.com. It's part of the general network that powers it. You can support this show if you like via patreon.com slash SpideyDude Network. You can also leave us a voicemail 818-925-6631. We'll play that voicemail in a future episode. We also like to get emails every once in a while. Be sure to leave us an email if you like, gargoylesvoices at gmail.com. Follow us on social media. At SpideyDude Network on Facebook is the General Network Facebook page. But you can also Follow this exclusive Twitter handle at FromEerie on Twitter. Follow us there to get show updates at both places. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe if you're listening to us on YouTube. And if you're listening to us on your favorite podcasting app, you can always leave us a five-star review, and we will read all of that feedback in a future episode. Want to give a shout-out before we get started also is to our... To our patrons, Scott and Venkman, thank you for your support of this show and all the shows on the Spidey Radio Network. As always, we thank all of our guests and our host for this show. And with that, I turn it over.
2: Welcome to our third episode of Voices from the Erie and our first deep dive into an episode of the show. We've, we're finally here. I would like to introduce my co-host Jennifer L. Anderson. That's me. And you know me, I'm Greg Wyshansky, and this man needs no introduction, we're going to give him one anyway, the co-creator of Gargwells, as well as the producer of the first two seasons and the writer of the SLG comic books, Gargoyles and Gargoyles Bad Guys, Mr. Greg Wiseman. Hello. The crowd goes wild. (laughs) (laughs) And I would like to begin this podcast by dedicating it to the memory of of Ed Asner. We are a peek behind the curtain. We are recording on August 30th. It's not going to be up until a couple months after that, depending on, depending, but I thought I should give you the the date because yesterday we lost a legend. We lost an icon. Yeah, I'm not going to tear up. I'm not. not and I'm trying not to either. I did that last night, <laughs> but yeah, no, we lost Ed Asner, the voice of Hudson, as well as Burbank and... Jack Dane on Gargoyles, and that doesn't even scratch the surface of his resume. He has just done so much. I mean, Lou Grant from the Mary Tyler Moore show, uh, he was on three Spider-Man cartoons, Uncle Ben on Spectacular Spider-Man, he was a a recurring cop character on the MTV show, and um, he was J. Jonah Jameson on the 90s show. Well, look at that. He was two father figures to Peter Parker, two very different father figures, and he played them both brilliantly. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Kent Nelson on Young Justice and uh, I feel like
1: uh, The lead Gra- character he also did this,
2: Yes
0: He also did this small character called Lou Grant You may have heard of him Oh my god I love uh, Lou
4: Grant me I love the Mary
2: Tyler Moore show There's A lot of Mary Tyler Moore on Nick at Night <laughs> oh, <God.
4: laughs> oh my god Nick at Night
2: <laughs> <laughs> No no he was fantastic He was fantastic and As I've may have mentioned earlier greg wrote a beautiful heartbreaking tribute to ed on uh ask greg last night you can read it at askgregwiseman.com but um greg do you have any further thoughts you would like to share uh
0: you know i it's pretty raw for me um i uh you know it took me a long time to compose what i wrote the other night uh last night um Cause, uh, this is, this is pretty tough for me. This really is, uh, uh, I, I'm grateful because my dad was ill and he seems to be, have come out of it, uh, doing pretty well. Um, and I was heard that and feeling pretty good and then got the news about Ed, And, and I, it's like whiplash. I can't quite get my head around it. Um, I, uh, you know, send my, uh, and I mean, that's, uh, you know, and I, I know Ed pretty well, but, but not nearly as well as so many people out there. I sent my condolences to his son, Matt, who I know a little bit. And, um, and uh, all sorts of people were sending me condolences, which is very sweet. But I feel like I don't deserve that. Um, it, but it's hard. This is, this really is a tough one for me. I, uh, uh, he meant a lot to me as a professional. Yeah, but as a person, he was just this great positive influence in my life and and um and i'm struggling honestly um that's the best i can give you right now i think
2: i never had the pleasure of meeting him i wish that i had i do remember signing at least one get well card for him at one of the gathering of the garwell's conventions
4: i i every time we uh, almost would get him at a convention um uh, he would have a health issue and like uh, one of my coordinators for the convention uh, the other day were like it was probably you know best that um, we stopped inviting him we felt like it was you know uh, that we were causing it after a while like it was just like one after the other after the other and I was like no 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 <laughs> we need to stop this but like I f- I felt like he was just gonna be there forever, like it was like it just took me out of the knees,
2: kind of thing. I, I did but. too, yeah. I did. And I remember out was yesterday, I would hope I remember the exact moment I found out. I was uh, on the phone with a longtime member of the fandom and a longtime friend, William Anson. People in the fandom might remember him as Revel. You two remember him, I'm sure.
4: Mm-hmm. I love Revel.
2: He's a really good guy. We're gonna be getting together. He toge- really
4: is. He's gonna- definitely one of the
2: good ones. We're gonna be getting together for the first time in over a decade. The last time I saw him, he wasn't at the final gathering, but he was. But I st- but I was driving back to New York from California, and I had stayed in his home for a few days to recuperate. So I'm looking forward to seeing him again in a month. But we're uh, but we're sitting but we're chatting on the phone. I'm sitting on my porch and I'm checking the news and I literally shout, "Oh fuck!" while he's talking. Yeah. And ironically, we were actually talking about Hudson a couple minutes before that. So. So yeah, it was it hit me hard. I. Didn't expect it to hit me quite as hard as it did, but like you said, he was an institution. He was just always there. It was. It kind of reminded me of when Stan Lee passed away.
1: Uh, yeah, I like, yeah. At need-
2: level. I mean, it wasn't shocking, but it was still very sad, and it. And I spent the rest of the day thinking about it, watching YouTube videos of him from various shows and movies he did, and. And I did the fastest turnaround for a tribute video for voices from the Eerie to post on the Twitter account that I could, but with <laughs> various clips from the sh- from the show, mostly from Long Way to Morning and The Price, which were two of its standout episodes. And God willing, we'll be able to do a deep dive into that. I had hoped to have a tribute discussion to Ed Asner, a very much alive Ed Asner, by the time we got to Long Way to Morning, but. Sometimes things just aren't in the cards. Before we move on to the episode, maybe now's the time to bring it up. Greg, do you remember Ed's audition?
0: I do. I mean, I I remember it uh, very well. Uh, I was uh, fanboying majorly. Uh, I had written... uh, When we developed the show, the dramatic version of the show, I I had written... Uh, Hudson based on Lou Grant. I mean, this was obviously before I knew Ed personally. But I just thought of Lou as the model for Hudson. And uh, so at the end of the uh, character description on the audition sheet, I wrote Hudson Hates Spunk, which you know, for anyone who's ever seen the Mary Tyler Moore show in particular (laughs) the pilot Um, there's this great wonderful classic scene where uh, Mary comes in for a job interview with Lou and the scene is brilliantly written but all so brilliantly performed by the two of them and of course the, the key classic moment is where Lou says to Mary kid you've got spunk and she gets all Smiley and, and starts to talk and he interrupts her and says, I hate Spunk. Um, and, <laughs> and nevertheless gives her a shot at the job. Um, and it's a wonderful scene and it's a wonderful moment. And I wrote that at the bottom of the sheet. I don't know, mostly for myself, I think, but, uh, but you know, it's sort of a a little clue to whoever was auditioning because it never occurred to me we'd get Ed Asner to audition. I mean, it never even crossed my mind. I just assumed I was way too big a star. And, and when, um, I was discussing the characters, all the characters that we were auditioning with, um, our voice director, Jamie Thomas, and he's like, well, who, you know, who are you thinking about in model this? And for Hudson, I said, well, Ed Asner, but I, you know, someone who can do that, you know? And then, of course, Ed came in to audition. And um, uh, later uh, he told me that when he saw that, Hudson Hates Spunk, his initial reaction was kind of elated because he's like, oh, well, this one was written for me. I, uh, You know, I, I'm guaranteed to land this role. And then, like, a minute later, he's like, oh, but Christ! If I don't land this role, it's just going to be horrible. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so, um, of course, he was fantastic instantaneously in the in the role. He got the character. Um, the dialogue was um, some combination of of uh, Lifts from Michael Reeves' script with a slight uh, rewrite by me um, to make it more uh, general for the character as opposed to specific to the pilot story uh, by itself. Um, and he got the language, he got the character immediately, and, and we were like, okay, great, now can you do it with a Scottish accent? <laughs> um,
2: and he could.
0: For example, Yeah, I think for him, that was a bit of a bane, uh, of his existence on the show was having to do that. But, uh, of course he could. And and he was just marvelous as the character and so great to have in the booth. Uh, and then, um, as I said earlier, he just became wonderfully, um, important part of my life, uh, uh, and I don't want to overstate it. It's not like he and I hang out, hung out, and and went bowling and sh- stuff like that. But uh, uh, but we did see each other, uh, you know, not often, but but often enough. And and um, he was a great uh, cheerleader for me, um, particularly when I had some real down times unemployment. And, uh, there was a point when I thought I'd have to just give up on being a writer and, and it was tremendously encouraging. And then, you know, it's all mixed up in my head because, uh, he has certain commonalities with my father. Uh, they're two very different men in a lot of ways, but, um, but they're both these Ashkenazi Jews from the Midwest and, and they both have these sort of gruff exteriors that are all mushy inside. And, um, which Lou Grant had too, but Ed is like that as well. And, and, uh, my dad's like that. And they literally had mannerisms in common. And, and so, you know, I, I, my feelings for Ed are, are incredibly complicated. Um, but I I just loved him dearly and uh, I can't quite get my head around him being gone.
2: Still feels that way for us and I never even met him. Jen, did you ever have the pleasure?
4: I I met him once, um, but he would never pick me out in a lineup, I'm sure. <laughs> I, I have no connection to him. But uh, but he was one of the good ones.
2: Genuinely. Yeah. Well, um, Ed, wherever you are, I hope you and Freakazoid are having a good time watching that bear <laughs> drive around <laughs> in the little car.
4: Cosgrove, catch me!
2: I had to throw in one Cosgrove. We didn't mention him before. I had to throw one in. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right, <laughs> now it's time to discuss the pilot of the series, Awakening Part One. Before we turn, we jump back over to you, Greg. Jen, do you remember the, your first time seeing this, watching this? Um,
4: yeah, I, you know, I, I, had uh kids, um, God, they were five years old, so like the Disney afternoon was like a huge thing in our house. Nice. And, of course, I've always been an animation nerd anyway. So, it, you know, it's like, oh, hey, the kids shows are on. But I plant myself there as well. Um, <laughs> but uh, I remember when it first came on, I'm like, this looks so cool. And the first, like, I think the moment um, that Hakon and Goliath moment with the sword and, you know, and, and everything when he first comes out of the stone was like it for me I was sold 110% right there
2: awesome um, awesome
4: it was a beautiful moment it was so well animated um and uh and like I I'd never missed an episode after that
2: awesome yeah I, I had a similar I have a slightly similar story I was I had seen the commercials I was waiting for it to come on and um, I actually ended up almost missing the p- the pilot, as I recall. But um, at the time, I think the Disney Afternoon lineup it was Darkwing Duck reruns, then then it was Goof Troop, then Bonkers, and um, Gargoyles was airing during in Bonkers slot that week, and I forget what came on. Oh yeah, it was Aladdin that was on after it. And um, at, at that time, I had become a little bit less jazzed by the Disney Afternoon. I was still watching the uh. Darkwing Duck reruns because I loved that show but um the rest did it for me just a little bit less so I remember I watched Darkwing Duck rerun then I switched to another channel I think to watch a, a ba- I think it would have been a Batman the Animated Series rerun and I'd almost forgotten to change it, b- it back I went upstairs and then I heard my brother call from downstairs hey Gargoyles is on so I ran back downstairs just in time for the opening lettering so I didn't miss a second of it thank God. And I watched the whole thing, and it was like, what is this? And I was intrigued. I got more and more intrigued. At the same time, I was also a huge fan of longtime comic book readers. So Batman, X-Men were my gel, and as a longtime Spider-Man fan, I expected the 90s Spider-Man series to be my favorite thing that was going to be on at the time. And then this took me by surprise. It just blindsided me. It wasn't based on a pre-existing property. I had no preconceptions going into it and even after the first episode i don't think i had still had the slightest idea just what this series was going to do for me or end up meaning for me i mean it was uh but i knew it was something different i knew it was something special and and i just wanted to see more
4: yeah it was it was a super extra bonus that my kids loved it
2: too so excellent excellent
4: yeah and like and we were enjoying it for different reasons so <laughs> um but but I but I love that you can do that like it's it's definitely something that's got a little bit of something for everyone
2: it does that was the goal um
0: you
4: know, nailed the, it
2: <laughs> um to
0: write the show produce the show on levels that would make it one kind of show for younger kids, full of eye candy, explosions, monsters, colorful characters, um, uh, big villains, etc., and at the same time have it play on another level uh, of more sophistication for a tween audience, a teen audience, uh, adult audience. Um, and in essence, what we set out to do, more than anything else, was write the kind of show we wanted to see. And the, you know, the sort of guiding goal for me in, in shows that I've been the showrunner on um, is that I've got to work towards what I'm passionate about, because then, hopefully, the passion comes out in the show. Um, and hopefully there are enough people out there who will also be passionate about it that it'll be successful. But I figure if I'm not passionate about it, if I don't give a damn, then there's no way uh, viewers are going to give a damn. So um, you got to start with coming to it as something you'd want to watch, and that's what um, Michael and Frank and I Um, And the many other people who worked on the show were really setting out to do.
2: And you succeeded with flying colors. One of the things I thought was interesting about this first episode right off the bat was the cold open. I remember I talked about how mysterious the commercials were last time, barely giving us a shot of the gargoyles. And then there was no introduction. There was no theme song. It was
4: bam. It opened up. Yeah.
2: So we were slowly guided in and we don't see we don't actually see the Garwells for the first time until Hakon does.
1: That's
0: true. Yeah. I mean, the, there were a couple reasons behind that. I mean, first and foremost, we were about to do an episode and a half set in the, the dark ages. Um, but we very much wanted the audience to know that this was not set there and that it was set in the present. So, uh, You know, we have this teaser introduces the Lisa and really sort of, you know, nails down the contemporary setting of the piece. You got cars, you got fire hydrants, you've got skyscrapers
4: Skyscrapers, yeah,
0: and you've got danger. um, And then you've got this mysterious set of claw marks on a piece of masonry that falls out of the sky. And, um, given all that, uh, we then feel comfortable, okay, now the audience knows this is where the show is going to be set. Now let's give them the backstory. Um, and we, you know, she asks the, the question, you know, what could be strong enough to leave claw marks in solid stone? And... Now we're going to answer that question. And the main, you know, we don't run the main title until the end of the episode, which is kind of odd,
1: but
0: <laughs> it worked. You know, anything that we had run, if we'd run it at the beginning, it would have given away all sorts of surprises. Um, so we opened the episode with just the episode's title, Awakening. She asked that question, what could leave these claw marks? And the answer is gargoyles, which comes up in flaming type. And then we are in the year 994. Um, and we've got Vikings attacking a Scottish, uh, coastal castle. Um, and, and yeah, it's another couple minutes before we even look up and see the stone gargoyles on the parapets. And then another couple minutes beyond that before. Goliath and the others wake up and you know the business that's used to be called the Steve Canyon intro where um, in the original Steve Canyon comic strip uh, all these people are talking about Steve Canyon before you meet him and then finally uh, you get introduced to Steve in person and that's kind of what we did we sort of uh, everyone's talking about what could leave these claw marks, and talking about gargoyles, and then finally and dramatically you see them come to life.
2: And perfectly. The angles, the fact that we're with with Hakon, we're in Hakon's head as it happens, and he's uh, not your traditional perspective character for a moment like this, especially when (laughs) we are meeting the heroes.
4: (laughs) You know what? Another um, thing that that, like, caught my attention was um, that the Vikings weren't cartoony horns on their helmets Vikings. Like, they actually had the round shields and the tunics and stuff like actual Vikings did. Uh, and I really, I really like it. Like, I remember at the time watching it, like, nodding my head, like, all right, let's go. Mm-hmm.
0: I'm not sure I knew back then what a real Viking looked like as opposed to a cartoon <laughs> <laughs>
4: well, really well, your character credit. design did. did.
0: <laughs> to give credit to, uh, obviously, Frank's supervision, but uh, our partners at Walt Disney Television Animation Japan who storyboarded this episode, directed it, um, and did the character designs and obviously did their research. So, you know, Mr. Takeuchi... Designed the characters, uh, and uh, Kazuo Torada and Saburo Hashimoto directed the episode, and and Mr. Torada um, also boarded the ep- episode, pretty much the entire thing, almost single-handedly the first okay. episode anyway. And um, so, I mean, really big shout out to to them, and. Uh, what used to be Walt Disney's Japanese studio because they just did a phenomenal job. And of course, Frank, we talked about this last time Frank went over to uh, Japan for something like a month um, and worked with them and, and, you know, they sent the boards to us and uh, once it was done and Frank and I gave notes and um, we just wound up with, Something that was uh, that turned out really well, but I'll tell you, it was it was a scary process. I mean, we get the footage back, and and we weren't sure what we had. Like we weren't sure if it was going to work. I remember seeing, uh, for example, the scene where the captain is walking up the stairs toward the princess during the second Viking attack. Just thinking, oh my God, this is taking so long she says fine and there's this long gap before he responds i'm like this isn't going to work of course it worked because of music i was so such a amateur as a producer um uh that you know it was exactly right and i remember our our editor our first season editor uh ellen orson and back then we were editing on Moviolas. I mean, uh, what was interesting to me, it, it, again, as part of the learning process, is well, this show is so old <laughs> that when we did the first season of uh, Gargoyles, it was all edited on old, fa- you know, with film on old fashioned editing machines, uh, Moviolas. And um, by the second season, we'd switched over to computerized editing on an Avid. And of course, since the second season of Gargoyles, I've never even laid eyes on a movie. I mean, that's not actually true, but I mean, (laughs) I've never worked on one since then, you know, in editing. Um, it's all been computer editing on Avid or Premiere or one program or another, one machine or another. Um, but that transition literally was happening during the first two seasons of Gargoyles. And, um, and Ellen was like, no, this is what you want. You want this moment of tension here, the musical filler, don't worry. And I'm like, really? She's like, yeah. And um, again, I was so green um, back then. Um, but I did have a sense of what I was looking to achieve. And Frank and I uh, basically had the same vision for it but to me, it's still something of a miracle that it
1: worked. (laughs) (laughs) Um,
0: You know, it just wasn't the kind of show we'd done at Disney. And it wasn't even the kind of show that Frank had done at Warner Brothers. I mean, it had more in common with Batman, certainly than with Darkwing Duck, but, um, but it was still a very different animal. And, uh, so it was really new ground for, for both of us, and um, and with some amount of squabbling, we helped each other through it and got and and uh, you know it's a pretty kick-ass first episode. I mean, there are things in it that I find really interesting, like you know there are two act breaks, right? End of act one cliffhanger is the gargoyles, is the threat, you know, um, got. Princess Catherine sort of bad-mouthing them, and then you see the gargoyles in the doorway, and Goliath growls lowly, and and that's what our commercial break was. In other words, it was so early in the show that we actually thought, and it it works, I think, that you don't know the gargoyles well enough, you don't know what they will or won't do, and so we're able to cut to commercial because we're worried that the gargoyles are going to kill everybody in the dining room. And... Likewise, at the end of the second act, you know what's the threat? Is it the Vikings that are the threat? No, it's the gargoyles. You know, um, Mary's thrown a stick at Brooklyn. Demona's leaped down, and Brooklyn and Lexington are like, okay, if they think we're monsters, we'll show them monsters. And you go to commercial, like, oh my God, the gargoyles going to attack?
1: <laughs> uh-huh,
0: they did. You know, I mean, uh, and of course, they isn't what happens. In either case, the gargoyles aren't the threat; they're the heroes, but. In that moment, um, in that, those early days of the show, uh, we actually felt that the gargoyles were mysterious enough and, and different enough and threatening enough and frightening enough that we could actually use them as the villainous outs for two
4: act breaks.
2: Nice. <laughs> nice indeed, that really worked. I mean, it's not one of those things I really thought about until it was pointed out, but you did that, and
0: well, I don't really notice it as much now because most of us are watching
4: it these days. You watch it on DVD, you watch it on Disney Plus. So There's no that, that commercial break, that moment of suspense, and then break. We don't have. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, you still got. I mean, they haven't re-edited the show,
0: so you, it still goes to black and then comes back. But, um, but it's not the same effect as having commercials. I, I mean, just like most people, I fast forward through most commercials, but at the same time, there's a value to me in having commercial breaks that I think we've lost. Um, that moment, even if all you're going to do is fast forward to just sort of take in what just happened and go, Oh my God. Before, and then you're pressing fast forward to race to the, you know, to the next to find, bit.
1: Find out what happens. Find out what
0: happens. <laughs> But now you're just watching. You know, there's no time to let it sink in at all. You know, at all. None. And um, and I think that's something I'm nostalgic for as a creator is having that moment for the audience to go, Holy shit.
1: <laughs> you
2: know, yeah. On a, yeah. yeah. On a personal note, and this is a larger thing, but I've recently be, begun to be grateful that entire seasons of shows, like, say, Young Justice, don't drop all at once anymore. I like being able to sit on an episode or two for a week and just absorb it, speculate, think about it. And I think Netflix kind of did away with that for a while. Yeah, they would just dump the whole thing.
4: And, and But, like, you know, especially... I, I, I miss the discussion between the episodes.
1: Mhm.
4: Like we would exactly. sit down and watch a show and then, you know, talk about it at work for a week before the next episode came on, you know. Um and and for a while there we lost all of that and um and and, and now when they do that, like the fans like riot and I'm like, "No, sit down, sit down. We're good. We're good. This is good." <laughs> We don't have um, um,
0: to info dump everything. I'm, I'm somewhat famous for liking to torture the fans, <laughs>
1: uh,
0: and uh, so I—I uh, I mean, uh, my attitude is, uh, I, you know, I—I I don't want to have—God knows—I learned this lesson—huge hiatuses between uh, episodes. Um, because that's painful, and I get that, and people fall out of the habit, but once a week seems right to me, you know? I mean, it, it just, you know, that gives you time for water cooler talk. That gives people time to think about, all right, well, what's going to happen next and make their guesses, and some will be right and some will be wrong. Um, but uh, when you just binge through without stopping, Um, I I think it loses something. I I think it, it, it's, you know, then you might as well just watch a movie. You know, I mean, if you're going to watch the whole thing in one sit down, it's, that's not me, the nature of serialized television. Uh, and of course, Gargoyles was never fully serialized. It was what we called episodic, but sequential. Mm -hmm. Um, each episode stood alone. We didn't tend to end on cliffhangers unless we did a, a two-parter or a three-parter or something like that. Or like this, we we just started on a five-parter. Um, but, but obviously, you wanted to watch those episodes in, in order. You got more out of it by watching it in order. If you came in in the middle, that's fine. But then, hopefully, you get intrigued enough that you want to keep watching and then you want to go back and see the ones you miss. Um, so there's a, an element of each episode being a self-contained story that any person could come in on and enjoy. But then uh, uh, you get more out of it by watching it in order. Um, on the other hand, I also think you get more out of it by taking a beat in between each episode.
2: Yeah. Agreed. I lo- I love the entire sequence in the dining hall. Princess Catherine is outraged about beasts in the dining hall while she's got dogs in there eating.
0: Yeah, there was supposed to be um, this moment that we never quite got uh, from Japan. And ultimately Frank was like, it's okay. We don't need it. We've already established that the dogs are there, but there's supposed to be this moment where she says, to allow beasts in the dining hall, and immediately you see a dog sort of jump up on, you know, put two legs on the table and grab a piece of meat and run away. <laughs> um and and have her with a look of chagrin or embarrassment because obviously she's just being hypocritical. You know, it's not really about beasts in the dining hall. She's just afraid of these creatures. Um and, you know, a few episodes down the road we'll find out why. Um but that's what it's really about. And I wanted that juxtaposition of putting the dog right there after she said the line. Um, But we never got it. And it still works. I mean, like you said, you, you noticed the dogs earlier in the, in the, at the opening of the sequence, but I still, it's one of the little things that I wish we had been able to get, which is putting that moment right there Um, would have been great.
4: Right in her
2: face. And, yeah. Mm-hmm. And then the following sequence where Goliath is speaking with the captain and with Demona, and um, it's just, I mean, you get a sense of who Goliath is practically, practically right there, whereas I feel like Demona is... In a way, hiding who she who she really is to a point, and she briefly lets it out when she's understandably frustrated. She's right; they deserve better. But the moment she says they should bow to us, I'm thinking, "Whoa, that goes beyond wanting to be treated res- with respect." She was a bit of a supremacist even then.
4: I the way I the way I saw, I saw that was okay. We just saw Catherine be. Uh, you know.
2: Oh, Goliath bow, yeah. Uh,
4: no, Catherine be like nasty about uh, how she feels she's superior to these beasts, mm-hmm. and then we turn it around and find out the gargoyles can be the same way. Yep. That that Demona is being the same, same way that there. Catherine was being, and I I, th- I thought it was a nice bookend, a little mirror there to to. Uh, don't... Remind us that they are, you know, not just a caricature that they each have their own kind of they're practically human.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And then it also gives us the opportunity for Goliath to sort of um, state his mantra. You know, we are what we are, you know, what they think won't change that It's the nature of humankind to fear what they do not understand their ways are not our ways. And we wanted to, uh, Michael and I constantly wanted to sort of remind the audience these aren't just humans with wings, you know, uh, and a tail. Uh, that they have their own culture, their own history, their own uh, biology. Um, and Goliath is the signpost for that, you know. Uh, everyone else will um adapt and Goliath will too as we'll see as the series progresses but um, but ultimately you know Goliath is the voice of the gargoyle way um, so by having Demona be that counterpoint to Catherine just as you said uh, Jen um, it gives Goliath the opportunity to sort of make the mission statement clear. You know, the Gargoyle mission statement
2: clear. <laughs> uh, and, and he puts her ease there, or he thinks he does, but I won't get to that much later. And... and There's no, there's
4: no at ease with her.
2: Nope. <laughs> we'll, we'll, be, we'll have plenty of time throughout this and future podcasts to discuss that. <laughs> but, um, I mean...
4: I love her so much! <laughs> me
1: too! <laughs>
2: <laughs> but, uh... What you're and I agree with what you're saying. Greg Goliath was in a lot of ways ahead of his time, and I like the idea that he comes to at the time ni- modern day 1990s Manhattan, and then he has to adapt. I mean, he was ahead of his time, and then he's suddenly behind, and he has to get caught up. So he
4: uh, he's, yeah. he started out being very progressive, and now he's like, whoa, wait, I'm yeah, now I'm playing up. Yeah.
2: <laughs> Tom yeah, is we'll
4: interesting. That more in the next couple episodes.
2: Yeah. Tom is a little bit interesting. I have a feeling when I, every time I watch this, I think on most shows somehow he or someone like him in the, in modern times would be the kid's sidekick because it feels like every show of the show has to have a kid's sidekick. Like the executives think that the kids need a surrogate character to the point where I almost don't remember when the last time I saw an action cartoon with an entire adult cast was.
0: Um, I, you know that goes all the way back to Batman and Robin, and, and um, we weren't entirely free from it either. I mean, there's a version of Gargoyles comedy development where the Elisa character is a mom, and she's got uh, two, assist, you know, two kids, a sister and a brother, who become the gargoyles' um, human friends, um, and we ditched that. Ultimately, and then when we redeveloped the show as a action drama, that totally fell by the wayside. But the idea of having a point of view character for younger kids in the audience, um, I think, is has a real value to it. I mean, I always thought people used to describe Batman, and Robin to me like, "Oh, Robin's there for the kids to identify with," and I'm like, "No, sorry, the kids don't want to be Robin." The kids want to
1: be
2: Batman. Yep.
0: Um, you know, teenagers might look at a teenage Robin and go, "Yeah, that's me." But the little kids, no, they want to be Batman. Um. And, uh, but why is Robin there? And the answer is to humanize Batman, to give him someone to play off of, to show that he's more than just the Dark Avenger. And likewise, uh, Tom is there to sort of, not because the kids need a little blonde kid to identify with, but because they need to get answers about the gargoyles. They need to see how the gargoyles relate to humans and to each other. And so that's Tom's great function in this early going is, you know, he's open enough to go up to the gargoyles, even though his mom and most of the other you know, peasants in the courtyard are terrified of them. Um, But he sees them as heroes already. And so even a young kid in the audience will go, oh, well, then I guess I can see them as heroes. And then through Tom, we learn about, hey, they don't have names. Isn't that weird? How do you tell each other apart? We look different. Like, that seems like a dumb question. to." Duh, We we don't look the same. You know, and he's like, yeah, but what do you call each other? And Brooklyn's like friend, like, you know, I mean, it's like from Brooklyn's point of view and Lexington's point of view, these questions are so odd, (laughs) Um, but they're the questions that a kid would ask. And so Tom is there, uh, again, not for the kids to identify with, but for the, but as a, to answer the questions that our younger audience would have. And then, of course, the adult audience thinks, well, I don't need that. But in fact, they need it more than the kids do because <laughs> the kids are very septic. The adults need things explained for them. Um, so it, you know, it, it. I, I love Tom as a character, but the fact of the matter is that, uh, you know, he, he is. Uh, he also serves a, a real significant and important function. And he doesn't have a lot of screen time, and yet somehow he manages in that very little screen time to uh, give us what we need to know um, and generate a conflict that will ultimately save the lives of, of the three young gargoyles and the beast.
2: I love that moment. It's so full of irony. Goliath is just diffusing the situation. And I think he understands what happened there, but he just needs to diffuse it quickly. And I, and I like that it even says to Demona that he'll make it up to them later. Like, you know, this is not a serious punishment. I just need to resolve this for the time being.
0: Yeah, I mean, to me, the thing I really love about that moment is that Demona doesn't call Goliath out while the kids, while the young gargoyles are in front of them, in front of them. You know, at this stage, she's. Second in command, and she respects what her boss and slash boyfriend uh, his authority. You well, know? um, of course, once they're gone, then she does confront him, which I think is right. You know, you you you've got to question authority, but she doesn't uh, undercut his authority. Uh, in that period of her life, she's not per se, looking to replace him. She's not trying to undercut him. She wants to support him, but at the same time, mold him into the kind of leader she wants him to be. And so I love that moment where she waits until they're gone before she calls him on his
4: bullshit. <laughs> yeah, and you know, Bronx did not deserve that. I mean I'm glad he went had to go to the rookery too because then he's alive later, but man, he Broadway got short in the stick. Broadway didn't either. I mean Broadway <laughs> <sounds had> nothing <laughs>
2: <laughs> He was just enjoying himself having a snack.
4: True Right. Ha- hashtag I free mean, Bronx. Thing, Bronx.
0: Yeah, one thing that's also sort of fun for me watching this in hindsight is sort of the evolution of Broadway. In this first episode, he seems to just be a guy who eats. There's nothing more to him, almost. Uh He's got a little bit of a false staffian quality to him as when we first meet him. Uh, all of nature trembles at my passing. But then, you know, he goes down during the fight and he's just eating. And then, oh, yeah, Viking comes by, so he hits him over the head with a drumstick. And then, you know, later he's just eating. And when he thinks the Vikings are attacking again, he's just hoarding food. Um, and then he goes down to the rookery and he's eating the moss off the wall, you know, um, and So he comes off as a cliché initially, I think. Um, And I'm okay with that because we knew where we were going with it. You know, we knew that, all right, let's give you an easy handle for these three young gargoyles. We'll get you to something more uh, rich as this series progresses, Um, at least uh, once we're through the pilot.
2: That was literally going to be one of my talking points here, how the trio start out as kind of stereotypical Broadway with the eating jokes in contrast to what they fully develop into. I will admit, though, on this rewatch, when he was eating the moss off of the wall with all the eggs there, I couldn't help but say, Broadway, don't do that in front of your future mate.
4: God. Um, I don't think she noticed. (laughs) No, I don't think so either, but...
1: (laughs)
2: So circling back to Princess Catherine and even the Vikings for that matter, I was looking at the um, early documentation for the show, the notes you were sending out to Michael Reeves and before Michael Reeves, uh, Eric Luke, and a previously undisclosed writer as well, and in some of these earlier drafts, the Vikings weren't Vikings, they were marauders, and Princess Catherine wasn't princess, she was a queen, and... Granted, we know that there were Vikings um, attacking Scotland at the time, and there was I uh, and...
4: I didn't know that. <laughs> I mean, we've, you know, we've established. <laughs> he doesn't know anything about Vikings. <laughs>
0: I mean, at the time, I think that Michael, as I recall, but so God knows my memory is atrocious. Um, switched it from generic Marauders to Vikings, and I was like, oh, cool, Vikings, that's cool, but it wasn't like I sat there and said, oh, good, that's historically accurate. It's only later, but I found out it was historically <laughs> accurate, and, and I honestly don't remember that Michael said to me, oh, yeah, that's right, that's historically accurate. I don't know if he knew. He may have. I don't know, but what I know is, is that later when we found out it was historically accurate, we were like, well, okay, we, by accident, and maybe it wasn't an accident, maybe Michael was on top of this, but from my point of view, it was like by accident we happened to have been historically accurate within the framework of a TV show about Garwell's. so let's continue with that. You know, in other words, when we got to, and we'll talk about this more, I assume, way down the road, but when we got to shows like City of Stone or... um Avalon, and we started going into more depth on the Scottish history, the rule was that we could add to history. You know, in other words, here are stories from history that you don't know about, but we couldn't contradict history. And, you know, there were things where some of the dating of of this time in Scotland is loose, like, oh, this guy lived from had to have been born sometime between here and here. We don't know exactly when, or had to die sometime between here and here. And that gave us some more flexibility. Um, But we uh, really made an effort in the episodes that followed Awakening to, to be on track with history. But the truth is, when we made Awakening, we, I don't, I did no research at all. And again, maybe Michael did, but if he did, he didn't tell me that he did. Um, and, uh, so it felt to me later, like it was just, wow, we got lucky. Um, and so here, I mean, I think changing her from a queen to a princess, I don't remember why we did that. Uh, but again, it, it made it easier to sort of slot her into history. So it wound up being a really good choice and it fit what we did down the road. But I don't know how much of that was sort of like forethought and how much of it was dumb luck. There was very little forethought on my part when it comes to that aspect of it.
2: And why Scotland? Why did you choose Scotland?
0: that was sort of a logic game for us Um, early on. uh, We wanted, I mean, I knew enough to know that, you know, no one was speaking modern English in a thousand years ago, but we didn't want to obviously deal with having our actors speak in ancient Celtic or uh, (laughs) something or anything like that. So, we just wanted a certain suspension of uh, disbelief in there. And so setting it in an English-speaking country that is a modern-day English-speaking country um, made that go down easier than doing the same thing, say, in France or Germany or something like that. Um, so we chose, you know... With that in mind, we uh, were basically talking about the British Isles. And then from the standpoint of, um, say, England versus Scotland, we just felt like, and again, I don't know how accurate this is, but we felt at the time that the connotation of the English uh, was more... Sophisticated, if not prissy, um, and we wanted a rougher hinterlands feel to the the medieval scene. So we went with Scotland because we felt it was further north, further away from um, you know the center of London civilization, and 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 less historically known, and thus easier for us to. For the audience, that is, to buy into the fact that, yeah, maybe this happened and certain things just weren't recorded into history. And, um, you know, those stereotypes that I just listed are horrible. Um, but that's what went through our heads, you know, is that we would have a, a rougher flavor to it um, by setting it on the west coast of Scotland as opposed to, you know, London. Or uh, And we wanted great contrast between the modern stuff in, in metropolitan New York. We didn't want them, the gargoyles, even by medieval standards, in a metropolitan area. We didn't want them in London. We wanted them out in the boonies, you know. Um, they're not even in Edinburgh. You know, they're way out in Wyvern on the West Coast.
4: Why did you choose 1,000 years?
0: Nice round number.
4: <laughs> all right, all right. <laughs> I mean, Eeny,
0: meeny, miny, I mo. Mean, okay. We, <laughs> I
1: mean,
0: you know, we didn't want a hundred years. That obviously didn't make any sense. You know, we wanted this to be, I mean, going all the way back to our gummy bears inspiration, which we talked about before. Um, we wanted medieval and it was 1990. I mean, it wasn't 1994 when we were making the show, but it was 1994 Um when the show was gonna premiere. So we thought, all right, let's do this in 994. Nice round, thousand year number. It slept for a thousand years. That's how we pitched it, and it just made sense to stick with that. Cool.
2: Very cool, very cool. And you mentioned Michael Reeves a few times, the writer of this episode. I feel it would it would be remiss if we didn't mention what a brilliant writer he is. He's been writing things that I've since my childhood that I've been watching seeing his name written by all over the place, and he is someone that I would love to get on here and speak with, but last I heard on a blog post that he wrote in 2014 about his health, I'm not entirely sure that's possible.
4: Yeah, the last time we saw him, uh, podcasting probably isn't the best choice.
0: Yeah, I mean, uh, I I don't know what his situation is now. I haven't um, talked to him in in years, uh, uh, which is on me, probably. But, um, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, last time we saw him at a convention, his daughter was basically translating for him. Um, He couldn't really speak. um, But... um, His mind was still sharp. I don't know what his situation is now. Um, That was what, 2009 or something, Jeffsburg? Yes, it was. Yeah, it was. Um, So I I don't really know what the situation is now. Um, Michael was, uh, without a doubt, uh, you know, uh, a savior for us on Gargoyles. Um, This was... uh, before anyone trusted me to write
1: anything,
0: <laughs> um, <laughs> I had no track record. And, and my bosses thought I was a decent executive but and were willing to let me produce, but they weren't uh, about to let me write. Um, and we went through a number of different writers, uh, television writers, comic book writers, people who'd done both. Um, and they just couldn't grasp what we were trying to do with the show and Michael came in and he got it and he didn't just get it. He executed it. You know, he, he took a story that uh, basically Paul Lacey and I had come up with and had tried to get through a a completed, a screenplay, teleplay Um, and they just weren't getting it. And Michael came in and he looked at what Eric had done and our, and the notes that Paul and I had on what Eric had done and he brought it together and he made it work. Uh, and we gave both Eric and Michael story credit on it. Uh, which, uh, Michael clearly deserved. And, um, and Eric contractually had earned. So the truth of the matter is, is that the story, the basic story idea was just Paul and me. Um, uh, but we were executives and in those days, at least, um, for good reason. I think, uh, executives weren't allowed to take credit. Um, it was considered part of their jobs, but we had really broken that story down. But Michael is the one who made it work. I mean, we had broken the story down for two different writers before Michael and they had not been able to make it work. Um, and Michael was the one who, who absolutely saved our, our asses, um, on, uh, the show because uh you know we've gone through so many writers the people were starting to wonder if uh you know is this doable for disney um and michael proved that it was and did an excellent job and it's just
2: terrific he did and sometimes i feel not you but sometimes i feel we as a fandom don't give him enough credit
4: I would I would agree with that like, um, but most most, I I, fandom focuses on the shiny like if you wanna if you mention gargles are like oh the one with the Star Trek characters on, (laughs) you know like that's you get that a lot behind the scenes is what really makes
2: it work yeah we'll we'll talk about that down the line but um I'm glad we were able to discuss Michael and his contributions I'm sure we'll talk about that even more down. Line, but and speaking of other contributions, we we went into this a little bit, but the episode, the animation is just stunning. I'm thinking about sequences like the fire around Broadway. Demona's hair moves in this episode in ways that it doesn't in any other episode, even other episodes Walt Disney in Japan did. It's they went all out on this one. Not that they didn't go all out on the rest, but there's all sorts of little details I'm spotting here and there when I rewatch this one and. It is a stunning episode to look at.
1: I, I, mean, I, I
4: think. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, you!
0: <laughs> <laughs> I think that Walt Disney Japan had something to prove. I mean, this was the first show where, as opposed to just all the pre production being done in Burbank or North Hollywood, um, just animating it, uh, we were letting them do the pre-production. They wanted to show that they were up for that and they could do it and they could handle it and that they could do a kick-ass job. And so they did. Um, You know, this was a talented, talented group of people at uh, Walt Disney Animation Japan um, in Tokyo and um, with a huge skill set and they uh, just knocked it out of the park. Uh, uh you know, if you go across the five-part pilot, um, you know, some of the animation's better than others. But they made sure that that first episode really kicks some ass. Um, and they did great. I mean, and the proof is right there on the screen. We called retakes. Frank and I called retakes. But, uh, you know, they're... If you want to get nitpicky, I'm sure there are little errors still in the show, but um, but for all intents and purposes, they just really, you know, hit a home run. With it.
4: It, it really had like that anime quality to it that I loved in anime so much, um, and that's what the hair reminded me of. It was like it moves like anime hair, and it was it was just gorgeous. It was just well, so beautifully done.
0: I mean, you can you can really see that anime influence in the teaser set in Manhattan that to me is feels very anime Uh, yeah and uh, you know we did all the script work in LA but but everything that followed um, under Frank and my supervision but everything that followed uh, was all done in Japan Um, and it's just gorgeous but you can see the anime influence in it I mean it's yeah, I don't think it in general looks like an anime show. There are commonalities, but I don't think we look like anime. You know, the girls don't have the giant eye. You know, it, yeah. it does, the character design is not an anime character design, and yet you can see um, the anime influence. And I think especially in that opening sequence in New York, you can really well
4: see a lot that of the sp- the special effects and the the movement and the action and stuff felt definitely had that feel.
2: Yeah, I agree. Very cool. Yeah, Jenny, I have way more of an eye for that sort of thing than I do. I just know, ooh, it looks pretty. <laughs> it's
4: pretty.
2: Yeah, I was, I was hooked on
4: anime long before Gargoyles came out, so.
2: <laughs> nice.
4: So I definitely felt it.
2: Nice. And um, there are a lot of little details in the show across the pilot. I mean, there's that scene at the beginning of the second night and you can hear the crickets chirping while Goliath has a scene with Demona and the captain on top of his tower. It's a little detail you guys didn't need to do and I'm glad he did.
4: <laughs> awesome sound design.
0: Well, I mean, we had a great team at, um, at our audio house, um, which was a damage audio and... Um, Take uh, Thomas was our uh, sound effects designer and he just did great work for us on the show. And he thought about all those little details. And um, and then just, you know, from a sound standpoint, obviously, you know, you got to mention Carl Johnson um, and the great score that he created. And in those days, um, I mean, it's changed. We used to do full orchestras. But because of that, we couldn't afford to do 22 full minutes of music. Um, because orchestras are expensive for obvious reasons. Um, nowadays we score a, an episode with, from beginning to end, but we're not using an orchestra. A lot of it is, um, you know, mimic the D-
4: digital. Yeah.
0: mm mm-hmm. Um, But in those days, and I went to a couple of those sessions with Carl conducting, you know, it's a full orchestra, so what we had to do was sit down and spot the episodes and go, okay, we can't afford to do the whole episode, although I think we did nearly all of the first episode because, you know, we had to create a music library for Gargoyles. But it's like, hey, let's do this scene, let's do this scene. This scene I think we can reuse Stuff from previous scenes. So we had a also, excuse me, a phenomenal music editor uh, named Mark Perlman who um, would use Carl's library of score to score, you know, a number of different episodes that followed. Um, and that's a challenge too. You know, it's like you've got, you know, X amount of cues and here's a new episode and we can afford to score one new scene. Um, otherwise Mark's going to have to just use the cues from previous episodes to score that thing as if it, as if that score was written for this new episode. And of course, again, first episode, that's not an issue. You got no library. So you got to score, if not the whole thing, virtually the whole thing. Um, but, uh, it's still, uh, you know, the, the theme song, the gargoyles. You know, the opening title theme um, and all the rest of the music is just so gorgeous and so evocative and so iconic. Uh, And that's all Carl Johnson. And and
4: he was like, if you watched uh, animation in the 90s, he like worked on everything. It was just amazing.
2: I saw his name in the credits for Animaniacs back in the day.
4: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, he did Batman and Mighty Ducks and all of, all that
2: stuff, so. He did so much, and I mean, he the guy is just a genius. I was glad we were able to finally get him to a convention before we stopped doing before conventions. Before they stopped tapping him. <laughs> and, and, and he was such a great guest, interesting to talk to, and I don't speak the language of music at all. I just know what I like, and this uh, music was beautiful. I mean, I still have the... Soundtrack at least the tracks that he released at the two thousand and one gathering, and occasionally I pop them in when and they're still soothing they still thrill me to this day. Hopefully one day we can get him on here
4: <laughs> Dream big
2: yeah, and <laughs> I will admit also one of the, my first clues when I first watched this way back in nineteen ninety four that the show was different was when we found out who the surprise villain of the episode was. And it was a very well-meaning antagonist. And while we had seen well-meaning antagonists before, you've never seen a well-meaning antagonist. that I can recall animation up to that point who was the, the friend of our heroes and was genuinely trying to help them out. Oh,
4: the captain. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yep. And the surprise when it was revealed.
1: Yeah, I mean,
0: um, uh, you know, Ed Gilbert, who played the, the late Ed Gilbert. Um, both our Eds are gone now, Asner and Gilbert. But uh, the late Ed Gilbert, uh, I worked with briefly on Tailspin. He played Baloo. Um, and he was so great. And when it came time to do the scene where the disguised captain approaches Hakon and offers, in essence, his services. It's like, okay, we don't want this to be revealed as uh, um, a captain, so it's one line of dialogue, but it can't sound like the captain. We want everyone to think it's the Magus. And I know people to this day uh, have said to me, oh yeah, he Je- had Jeff Bennett who played the Magus. Do that one
1: line.
0: <laughs> that was sort of. They're like, you're, you're sort of cheated, and I'm like, we no, sort that's of did. <laughs> yeah, that's Ed Gilbert doing Jeff Bennett doing the Magus.
1: Um, oh, it's
4: fantastic.
1: hmm Um, mm-hmm.
0: I think we did sort of cheat, but not in the way they're thinking. I mean, we cheated in that. Why is uh, the captain using the Magus' voice? I mean, what? Hey, why? Why the hell is he doing that? That's a legit question,
4: I think. Um, but-, but then it makes that moment in the stairwell when you find out, oh, you know, when he confronts Catherine, um, like that much more shocking.
2: <laughs> it does. Also, the captain's wearing a white robe with a hood. He's down there. Maybe he doesn't like the guy. Maybe he's just riffing on him on purpose to amuse himself.
0: <laughs> or he's framing him. If he gets... If, any, yes. if they get oh, yeah. caught, he's framing
4: for it. Uh, if things go south, he can say, I love me. <laughs> I don't know. I saw some guy in a white robe leaving earlier today. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
2: Yeah. Well, no, Ed Gilbert did a fantastic job, and I'm glad he mentioned him. He was a terrific voice actor, and he was terrific as Baloo. He's terrific in everything. I used to hear him in, and uh, he's missed also. And I just liked how well-meaning he was. We'll probably talk more about that next time. But he...
4: it's, it's a show about people whose best intentions go sideways hard.
2: <laughs> mm-hmm.
4: <laughs> yeah, he... I mean, you know, we were trying to create fully realized
0: characters who are, uh, whether Gargoyle or human, they're human and they make mistakes. You know, it's not always uh, going to go well. Um, and, uh, and the captain was part of that. You know, the, what you hope is, is that once it's revealed and you get his motivation, you understand how it went from bad to worse. But, uh, it still comes down to, uh, him, you know, being frustrated with the situation as it existed and thinking he can change it for the better and then making it
1: considerably worse.
2: It was, it was tragic as is, and it got even more tragic when, Okay, listeners, if you don't know about this, there's a uh, website called askgregwiseman.com, and on there, back in the early days, he posted a prose story called Once Upon a Time There Were Three Brothers. He revealed the captain's real name, and we know that his relationship with these gargoyles goes back a long way before even the castle, according to that story. Mm -hmm. So that just took a tragic situation and made it even... More tragic and yeah, more more pain. Mhm, and it's not information you needed for the show, obviously, because we got it. But you added to that even years after the show ended. I mean, well done. Thanks.
0: <laughs> A lot of credit to pass around. It's not just me, obviously, but uh, um, but yeah, we worked hard to to make all this play and uh, you know fool the audience briefly. Uh, there's the scene of the Magus uh, looking through a spell book. I always thought he was—he he legitimately was frightened of the gargoyles, and that he's looking up the Stone sleeps. spell that later he uses, and he's bookmarking it, um, which is why when Kacon opens the book and starts ripping off pages, goes right to the spell.
1: Not,
0: <laughs> yeah, it's not an accident that he—that he's ripping off the second page that deactivates the spell. He's opening the book and starting to rip pages from where it's marked. Um, and it was marked there and the Magus is ready with that spell because he was looking for it. He was looking for something he could use against the Gargoyles because he did not trust them. Um, didn't understand them, didn't trust them. Humans fear what they don't understand. So um, mm-hmm. that always kind of grated on me. People saying, oh, it's so such a huge coincidence that he happens to rip <laughs> off the spell. I'm like, guys, we actually showed you the scene where he's looking for that spell. I mean
2: <laughs> You play fair so with a, the with so the audience
0: you a page and translating it from the Gaelic. I'm not sure what else we could have done to to spell that out any clearer. but
2: You play fair with the audience and then they don't pay attention. <laughs> 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 don't you just love that. I mean <laughs> And also, one of the things that took me by surprise when this episode first aired was um, you didn't. Um, okay, I mean, back in the eighties, G.I. Show, they always parachuted out of the planes, they always jumped out of the tanks and the things. No one ever really got hurt. And here, and here we're we see at one point the captain literally kicks a guy, a Viking, off of a tower, and that's a pretty big drop we don't see him okay we see hakon landing in hay later but he needed to come back to do the thing that he does and but i mean it is implied that there are killings going on here i mean they're not shown it's implied and uh one of the things that i noticed in recent viewings which um the castle had a pretty strong garrison. They needed the Gargoyle's help, but we see the garrison being marched out in chains along with everyone else at the end of the episode. That garrison is not present in Awakening Part 2, and they don't escort Catherine to Edinburgh in Avalon Part 1, and all I can think is, can't put them to the sword on the way back to the cave.
0: Yeah, I don't know. I haven't... It's been so long, I I can't remember if we thought that out or not. Um, But probably... um, you know, you, you killed all the gargoyles because you're worried about them as a threat. Um, the peasants make good slaves, and the uh, nobility uh, you can ransom in the medieval sense. Uh, but what the hell are you going to do with a bunch of archers who, you know, if they get loose, could cause you trouble? It's the same with the gargoyles. If you're going to smash the gargoyles, you're not going to leave enemy soldiers alive. Um, so I mean that, that makes sense. I mean I don't. I think uh, the captain was sort of disgusted with his archers after the first night when they tried to take credit for because they fired a few arrows at the fleeing Vikings. They tried to take credit for chasing the the Vikings off when it was so clear that it was the gargoyles who routed the Vikings, not the uh, Scotsman um, and uh, so I think you know uh, if he failed to save the gargoyles he wasn't going to work too hard to save uh, those archers and soldiers on there. He, I think he was pretty well disgusted with the whole group of them.
4: And also they killed all the gargoyles.
2: <laughs> yeah I was just about to get to that one. There's no way we're going to let that one so, slide. So
4: like jaw-dropping. <laughs> Yeah, the, yeah, just including. the moment you were like, you're like, realize, oh, the captain really has no play here. And he's going to have to let him do this. And they start whacking away on them on him. And Hacon hey, starts, you know, and I was just like, whoa. <laughs> like, uh, you know, it was like a huge plot point for me, like that just hit me in the chest.
2: That scene is perfect, by the way, the way it is written, the way it is directed, the way the music comes in, knowing when not to use music, the silhouette and the use of shadows and lights. There is nothing wrong with that scene.
4: No. And it it just like ramps up that that awful feeling like in the like, clearly the captain is devastated. So like you're feeling what he's feeling and like, oh, you done messed up, my friend, you know. So, instant karma.
2: Yeah, I mean, I'll admit I'm not entirely sure their plan was workable anyway, but we can discuss that later. Um, but, <laughs> because, but still, you, you just feel it. The I, I remember once I got into it with someone about this show, and they mentioned something about, oh, the innocence of that show, that cartoon is so innocent. People shouldn't be drawn. Okay, sh- they shouldn't be drawing fan art like this. And I said something like. This show opens with genocide.
4: <laughs> <laughs> I like, I you know, but it's it's a there's a fighting show like you've got you these intense relationships, but there's battles and stuff like this isn't just you know I, I people that that fluffify things. Um.
2: and all the great heroes have tragic backgrounds. I mean. Spider-Man couldn't, Peter Parker couldn't save Uncle Ben. In fact, was somewhat responsible for Uncle Ben's death. Uh, Superman's home planet, Krypton, blew up. Batman loses his parents. Goliath loses his clan. Yeah. Oh,
1: yeah.
0: I mean, you know, it it, it was time to, you know, we got real. Right? <laughs> you know, <laughs> it, 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 um, you know the, one of the big motivations from a Disney executive standpoint for doing the show was okay. The Disney afternoon, which we all loved and we loved every show on it, honestly. um, But there was fear that there was a sameness there, um, that, you know, we really needed to start bringing in some diverse content into the thing. So Gargoyles was allowed to be Gargoyles. It helped that we had no network. We were syndicated show. The only S&P notes we got were um, from, you know, uh, Adrian Bellow, who was our S&P executive. Although, I don't know if she had started back that early. Maybe. I can't remember now. I mean, she was definitely there for most, definitely there for all of season two. And I think she, I can't remember if she was there for season one. But we basically used common sense. I mean, we did we did show that the gargoyles were destroyed. And we showed the shadow on the wall of the mace coming down. Um, on uh, a gargoyle we didn't really know Um, but we didn't show it on camera you know if a guy if the captain kicks a guy a Viking off the tower we don't show the impact on the ground I mean some of this is just common sense Um, but uh, you know we imply things and then you know Goliath and Hudson fly back and and there are no gargoyles. There's just rubble. And he lands on the parapet where, where his angel of the night is known to roost. And it's chunks.
4: I, I remember and thinking that that's uh, how morbid that was. Mm-hmm. Like, like it's kind of like rummaging <laughs> through someone's entrails kind of thing, because he picks it up in his hands and stuff. And I was just like, Ooh, that's kind of grisly.
2: Yeah, I remember a lot of my initial reactions. I cannot remember though if I thought she was actually dead at the time. Can you, Jen?
4: Oh no, I didn't think she was dead. <laughs> I, I, th- I, there was no way that that cool character was not coming back. <laughs> <laughs>
2: That very cool character. I mean, a I remember very
4: my, cool character. I my had to come back.
2: I remember my first reaction to her when she first steps out of the shadows, "Face Me, Human, If You Dare." I remember saying, "Wow, who's that?" I had no idea that I would one day have that character tattooed on my lower leg, yep. <laughs> or courtesy of you, by the way.
4: <laughs> You're welcome. You're welcome. But like, I, you know, I seriously like we sh- we wouldn't have gotten that cool, you know, "Face Me, Human, If You Dare" if she was a one off. mm
1: Hmm.
4: So, in my brain, she was she was there. I just yeah. had to
2: be patient. And like I said, the scene was perfect. The only thing that I think could have improved the content at all, and you said you couldn't do it with characters you were familiar with, but it would have been cool if, say, we had gotten to meet, even briefly, Othello, Desdemona, and even Iago at that point, mm-hmm. and...
0: It really would have been cool. There was a big problem with that, which was not s and related, which was that we didn't know we were
1: doing Cold Stone yet. Uh, um, and, uh,
0: you know, uh, these days uh, when I plan a show for reasons just like that, uh, you know, uh, Brand and I, for example, are working, Brand Vietti and I are working on Young Justice, we plan meticulously um, sometimes seasons in advance, but we were, you know, I was again, a Tyro producer, um, uh, barely knew what I was doing. Um, some would say didn't know what I was doing, but, um, uh, <laughs> and, you know, I, the, and, and from our point of view, we thought we were planning a lot. I mean, the whole thing about, uh, the eggs down in the rookery, and and, and so we had notions of things that we wanted to do, but we definitely hadn't come up with the idea of Coldstone yet, and so we didn't feature uh, Othello, Desdemona, Iago. Uh, you know, again in hindsight, I would have absolutely done that. Um, I probably would not have shown them getting smashed because, again, S and P. I don't think we would have been allowed to do that, but I would have shown them in the episode and then, you know, they weren't among the survivors so that down the road we could you know, do Cold Stone and and, and shock not us have off. To ask the audience to say, just trust us on that. You didn't see them, but they were there. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, but that's the reason it wasn't, you know, it's not that you don't see them because oh, uh, S&P, we couldn't show them, you know, we couldn't let you get to know characters and then kill them. Um, the reason you don't see them is we hadn't thought of it yet.
1: <laughs> um,
0: you know, it, it, it was early days. I mean, really early days. We wrote that pilot, again, you know, across at least three writers, um, plus Paul and myself. And, you uh, and, you know, we had, I mean, you can see in the credits, you there's all these, uh, artists, uh, listed doing development inspirational work like, uh, Bob Klein and Greg Guler and Paul Felix and Dave Schwartz and Ted Blackman, all work that we had done, uh, before and after Frank came aboard to ship over to Japan so that they could do designs and backgrounds and stuff like that, um, Based on, you know, what we had sold the show on. So, but back when we were doing that pilot, we had, you know, we, we had no idea what the, I mean, we knew we were doing 13 episodes, but I couldn't have told you what those eight other stories were. I mean, we had the pack already, um, in our heads, and we had an idea for the mutates, which we didn't end up doing till season two, um, and a bunch of other things, but, uh, one thing we definitely did not have. Yeah, was cold stuff. Uh, <laughs>
2: that, that
0: came later.
2: And it, and it was great. And for all the. Uh, and for all you're saying about how green you were at the time, you still created what is widely recognized as one of the greatest Western animated series of all time. So you, while you say you didn't know what you were doing and doing, well, you must have done something right, you and your team.
0: Uh. Yeah, I mean, I think we did a lot right. I mean, you did. <laughs> don't, don't get me wrong. I, I I think I did a good job of I did my part, and I think uh, again Frank and Michael and uh, uh, Mr. Takeuchi and Mr. Uh, and all these people, including our you know Jamie Thomason, and a phenomenal cast and many other people, many many other people did a really great job collectively. But I don't want to pretend. Things that just weren't true. I mean, I could sit here and go, Oh, yeah, we planned it all way in advance, and,
2: and,
1: um, uh, and it's not really true.
2: <laughs> um, yeah, there's uh, producers and creators out there I mean, who I won't again, name who do do that, so it was
0: <laughs> a level that we that I think was more than the typical episodic show of the uh, particularly of the 90s, you know. Um, certainly, you know, but um, we definitely planted seeds and had ideas, but that began to come into play more in the episodes that followed the five-part pilot. At the beginning, we were just desperate to get this, the scripts for the pilot out and get them over to Japan and get them animated and all that stuff. It it was um, you know, there wasn't a ton of forethought uh, in those days because there just wasn't room for it. And I didn't know to do it. Um, but, you know, it's a lesson that we all learned very quickly. And so, and then, you know, there were other things that were happy actions. This will come up later, but, you know, you know, Michael writes a throwaway line about Xanatos meeting with the emir who never appears on screen in that episode. And it was just a, a line really done to indicate how important Xanatos is, that he can d- postpone a message with some Amir. Um, but that always stuck with me, like, well, who is this Amir? What does he and Xanatos have to talk about? So, you know, down the road, we start saying, okay, the Amir is going to be doing this. And uh, let's mention him one more time before we actually get to see him uh, so that, you know, it feels like continuity. But that continuity game was something that, um, again, I, I come from comic books before animation, so I'm used to that. But I, it, it was definitely something that we began to build as, as the first season progressed. And definitely all through the second season, we were big on that stuff. But in these early, early days that we're talking about now, not at not nearly as much forethought um, about what would be coming next. We just sort of took it for granted that we'd be able to find stories. And in fact, that was true in space. I mean we not only never had trouble finding stories the, the bigger issue was we got way more stories than we have episodes. Uh, which ones are we going to
2: pick? Um, and that's a great uh, dilemma to have
0: yeah, it is and and uh, but. So we were right in saying hey well we're you know taking it for granted that we'd have enough stories but we uh, um, and that's been true from Gargoyles from day one we've all I've always had way more stories to tell than I've had episodes or comic book issues to tell them in but uh, yeah it doesn't necessarily mean that we had a lot of forethought in the early going.
2: So what led to the decision to strip it across the entire week, especially since it was a 13-episode season, and usually when you only have 13 episodes, you're going to air once a week, so what was the uh, impetus behind that?
0: Well, we were a a once-a-week show, generally. We were designed to be Friday afternoon, but uh, DuckTales and um, Tailspin and Rescue Rangers, all those shows, uh, including Aladdin and, and uh in those days, they did these four part pilots, four parts. Um, and would strip them across the first week just to get the audience excited about it. Um, it was a little weird for us because those shows were five day a week shows and we were a one day a week show. Um, so it was gonna eat up a lot of our content rapidly. But it was a game plan that pointed us to television, which was Disney's distribution arm and syndication felt comfortable with. And so they wanted to do that for episode pilot. As Michael and I began working on scripts as opposed to the outlines, but actually getting the scripts in, what became clear, um, particularly once Frank weighed in, was that this story was way too long. It wasn't gonna fit in four. And we needed, you know, originally, and the biggest thing was the medieval section, which in theory was all supposed to be in the first episode. And if you can picture, you know, you basically get four acts of medieval stuff, three acts in episode one and one act in episode two. And so they were saying to us, you've got to crush the, these four acts down into three and make it all fit into one episode. And I just kept looking at it, um, and this isn't this. You know, Michael was like, "Well, I can do it if you want me to," but um, I'm like, "Yeah, I don't want to do it. I like what we have got here. I like what I liked what Michael had written, um, and I felt it was rich and worthwhile. And I just sort of looked at it, and then I looked at the broadcast pattern, and I said. Can someone explain to me why we're doing four parts and not five? I mean, there are five days a week, right? Um, can we just take this story and make it into five instead of four and go Monday through Friday instead of Monday through Thursday or Tuesday through Friday? I don't even remember what the original plan was, um, but originally it was four days, strict. And... Uh, So I took that to my bosses, Bruce Cranston and Gary Kreisel, and I said, Can we do this? And Gary said, Well, that, you know, there's some, it it makes some sense to strip across the week as opposed to um, four days out of the week. You know, which day aren't we going to do? It was either going to be Monday or Friday. And neither made a hell of a lot of sense, I guess. You know, skipping Friday, you'd think makes sense, but we were gonna be a once-a-week show on Fridays, <laughs> so that was even a little weird. Um, and then, so he went to Buena Vista and said, "Hey, can we do this?" And they said, "Sure." Um, and and then it did bite us in the ass a bit later. When uh, again, I'm sure we'll talk about it when we get to Enter Macbeth. The original animation for Enter Macbeth uh, came back and really. It had been subcontracted out to a different studio and it came back in, in really problematic shape and unfortunately it also happened to be the episode where Gargoyles moved from the castle to the clock tower so we couldn't air the episode that followed it even if they were ready. Like someone suggested just put the next episode ahead because if it had been DuckTales what difference would it have made? You know? If it had been Tailspin, do this adventure before that adventure. No one's going to know. And, you know, if it had been a different episode, we might have been able to get away with that. But it just happened to be the one where our heroes changed their base of operation. (laughs) And (laughs) it didn't work. And so we had to do a rerun for a week. When you do that, you don't want to take the most recent episode you've aired. You, take, you go back to the first one. And then Buena Vista said, well, if we air the first part of the pilot, we might as well just take five weeks and air episodes one through five weekly in yeah. case anyone missed that first week. So that meant that we wound up with, a instead of a one-week hiatus, we were supposed to have a zero-week hiatus. We wound up. Because of the trouble on Enter Macbeth needing a one or two week hiatus, and wound up taking a five week hiatus, which was much longer than we needed. But um, uh, it, you know, that was the result of us uh, not having come up with the tent pole system, which we'll talk about in season two, Um, and sort of getting stuck uh, with a uh, just happening to have the one episode that we needed to transition was the one that came out problematic, but the switch from four episodes to five for the pilot um, just at the time seemed like it made sense. And it wasn't a big fight. It wasn't like I had to fight to switch from four to five. I had to talk to a hell of a lot of people, but uh, everyone sort of agreed, yeah, this is good. We've got enough story. We've got enough content here. Um, and um, I think the structure isn't quite as elegant. It was structured for four, and then spreading it out um, across five. The act, uh, the episodes don't always end in the most ideal place, but I think all, all that uh, really comes down to me knowing stuff that the audience would never know. So I, I think for the most part, it seems to work really well. And I definitely love the way this episode ends. I mean, it really ends on, on this sort of tragic note here um, and gives us the breathing room to uh, finish the dark ages story in the next episode.
2: There was something else I noticed in this, and it's actually happens at the end of the first four parts of Awakening and this is something that I know you because you you're one of your catchphrases on social media is spoiler spoiler requests, no comment. I do not think if you had any say you would ever run a next time on Gargoyles or next time on Spider Man or next time on Young Justice ever again.
0: Yeah, that's not my thing, but um I again back then I didn't know how much I would wind up hating spoilers. Um, honestly, I didn't. I mean, you know, back in those days, or even years later when Ask Greg first started, I was giving up spoilers right and left. What the hell did I know? Um, <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, I think what was important to everybody uh, on the business side of things and to me, also to some extent, uh, was to remind the audience. Yeah, remember we started in the present, and you hopefully got lost in the story in the past. So we wanted, I think, actively to say, "Oh, yeah, coming up. Remember, we're going back to the present. Don't think this is all going to be a medieval show. It's not." And we thought we felt that that we had captured the audience enough in our past story that they might literally have forgotten that the whole thing opened with Elisa and and masonry falling from a Manhattan skyscraper. Um and so we wanted uh to to have a little bit to show hey there's more to this story in the past but really to show hey there's a helicopter there's this there's that this story is going to continue in the present. And then again we uh Hadn't used the main title at the beginning because it would have s- scooped too much of our surprises uh, if it had been at the opening. But, you know, there was... You had to build time for a main title. Um, and so we have this extra time. So we we just put it at the end, which is weird, but that's what we did.
2: All right. Thank you for everything, Greg. And before we wrap up, is there anything you would like to plug? Uh,
0: you know... Uh, I'm working on the fourth season of young justice. Uh, I honestly do not know when it's premiering yet. Uh, but we have 17 episodes in the can. We've got, uh, let's see, six more in post-production. And then the last three are still being, uh, animated overseas. Um, uh, of course, by the time this airs, uh, all that will advance even further. But, uh, that's all I'm
2: working on right now. All right. Jen, is there anything you want to plug?
4: Um, no, I'm, I go to my website. Hey, If you, uh, if you go to my Etsy, I do have
2: Phoenix gate decals, <laughs> go get them and pick up. her evil shouldn't look this good card. So, All right. That's right. That's Sarah too. I would like to thank everyone. Jen, thank you for being a great partner in crimes, but I would like to thank all of you for listening. Thank you. And, Thank you everyone for participating and we will be back next time to um, move from one century and one continent to another and meet for the first time some little known character named David Zanatos. You may never have heard of him. And once again Ed Asner, thank you. It is the nature of humankind to fear what they do not understand. Their ways are not our ways.